0: This week's episode is sponsored by RLJE Films. Every corpse has a story. The iconic Clancy Brown and Euphoria's Jacob Elordi star in the phantasmagorical horror anthology, The Mortuary Collection. Now available on DVD and Blu-ray. A misguided young girl takes refuge in a decrepit old mortuary where the eccentric undertaker Montgomery Dark chronicles a series of terrifying tales. But her world becomes unhinged when she discovers that the final story is her own. Feast your eyes on The Mortuary Collection and own it on Amazon.com today.
1: In 1979, the first issue of Fangoria was released onto the world. It's been over 40 years, and Fangoria is better than ever, each issue bringing you 100 pages of exclusive, carefully curated content honoring horrors past, present, and future. These articles and interviews will never be published online, so the only way you can read them is by getting your hands on a physical collectible copy of your own. We can't give anything away because we want the experience to be a surprise, but we can safely say you do not want to miss a single page. Head to Fangoria.com to learn more and to subscribe. And while you're there, make sure to enter the promo code COLORS, that is C-O-L-O-R-S, to save 25% off your yearly subscription. Again, that is code COLORS for 25% off. Welcome to Colors of the Dark. I am your co-host, Rebecca McKendry, and with me is Elric Kane. How you doing?
0: That was the most shockingly fast opening we've ever had. I was like, not even ready. I'm like,
1: I'm going in, man. I'm going in. Welcome. This is how we're rolling tonight. It's the 80s, man. Everything is fast
0: energy! Your hair looks big. My hair is always big. Uh, big energy. Yes, we're bringing it. Yes, we're going to be hitting some 80s stuff uh, very soon. In a second, uh, I guess we should probably start by uh, talking about our screening that is hitting the very same day.
1: Same day. So, guys, same time that this is streeting on Friday, the 30th, that evening. Elric and I have a screening through USC, the USC screening series that we've been doing with the wonderful Alex Ago. Um, so this week we are showing After Midnight, phenomenal, phenomenal fan um, film, and uh, that I am a fan of. And uh, joining us to do kind of a masterclass discussion on indie filmmaking um, is going to be producer Dave Lawson, filmmakers um, uh, Jeremy Gardner. And Chris and uh, Bria, actress, is joining us as well. So it is just going to be a a big party. So we've got just uh, the whole gang, both of the directors, joining and everything. So, yeah, you can RSVP on our socials. And, uh, yeah, we'd love to see you there
0: yes bring bring good questions filmmaking this is the first time we've done one that's a little more practical Mm -hmm. usually it's just us talking about a crazy movie that we love this time we thought let's mix it up let's talk about actually indie producing indie filmmaking the whole package so and this is a great one to do it on because it was a script that we had all kind of heard before it got made like oh there's this great script and then suddenly it got made so uh yes tune in for after midnight this friday
1: and I'm super excited because I have been showing the battery in my class as an example of like a do-it-yourself, you know, oh, yeah. outside of Hollywood horror film for years. And finally having Christian and Jeremy join us. Like I, I've already told my students, I'm like, this is required. I know it's okay. the last week of the semester, but it's required um, because you can finally talk to the filmmaker about it. So yeah, Yeah, it's be no, awesome. yeah we've
0: never really had them together. That's a good point.
1: Yeah. Um, so what all have you been watching? I think we watched one the same, Two. correct?
0: Sasquatch. Two.
1: Sasquatch! I didn't even put that on my list. No,
0: we don't have to talk about it much. It's very horror adjacent, really, but it it's, is. it's cool.
1: No, Sasquatch was definitely my deep dive where for three nights I was really obsessed with it. And then it just kind of not <laughs> ended. It just You, you didn't stopped. believe me.
0: I, 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 I wasn't well, I, I saw somewhere on IMD, I swear it was on Letterboxd where it said, um, 436 minutes when I first looked up Sasquatch, right? The first time. So I was like, Oh, it's a long series. So when I finished episode three and each one's like 50 and it was just over, I was like, what? I was really confused because it had kind of this, you know, kind of open ending. And then, and then I looked it up and the t- running time had changed since when I first looked to whatever that is. And I was like, Oh shit. I mean, I still like it a lot, but it definitely didn't feel. Yeah, I mean it's hard. To, yeah, well, give them it, tell people what it's about. It's
1: yeah. Amazing. So the whole setup is um, this guy who's kind of um, this uh, you know fringy reporter. He does all of this like crazy. Um, he considers himself to be like Gonzo investigative reporter, which yeah, I, like,
0: investigative they, like yeah. immersive stuff. Yeah,
1: and he's like done like you know history of gutter punks, and he'll go and hang out with people who are doing cocaine for seven days straight, and then write articles about it. Well, in this instance. He was doing an article, I guess it was back in the 90s, about pot growers in Mendocino County, California, which is Mendocino, um, or as most people call it, just Mendo, is like notorious for where marijuana is grown in California. And this is going way, way back to the 1970s. It's just this absolutely beautiful area of Northern California along the coast. And it has kind of the perfect climate for marijuana. So long before it became legal in California, there was a lot, a lot of activity up there and a lot of it was overlooked by the cops. But then in the 1980s, there was this whole anti-drug thing and it got really kind of dangerous um, because people started carrying guns and, you know, kind of ripping off each other's property and crops and things like that. So anyway, 1990s rolls around, he's doing an article on it and he is actually hanging out with some of the growers in one of their houses In uh, like When
0: he's like 22 or something.
1: yeah. Yeah, he's like super young. And that night, this guy comes bursting in the door, a couple of guys, and they are like crying and frantic saying that these three guys who were told to watch this crop field had been brutally murdered, like ripped apart by Sasquatch. And the guy who he was staying with was like, no, no, no. It had to be another grower. Are you sure it wasn't the cops? You know, this sucks. Oh, my God. And the guy's like, no, man, it was fucking Sasquatch. And so and now years later, he is remembering this story and decides to start finding out because he never heard anything about three deaths that night, like nothing ever hit the presses. So whoever it is, these were just deaths that no one ever reported. And so now decades later, he decides to go back. Go back to the area and start researching who were the three guys who could have died that night and was it actually Sasquatch? And, um, and it feels
0: yeah. super dangerous. Like, like most of the movie is just him taking phone calls and stuff. Like, there isn't much besides the cool animations, which are really interesting. Um, but it's a pretty minimal movie in that way. But the calls just feel dangerous. Like, a lot of a lot of, yeah. Yeah, a lot of <laughs> hidden voices and stuff. Because, you know, it probably is the case. If you go around poking around a, a three-person murder from, you know, 20 years earlier in a town like this, where a lot of people could be buried, uh, you realize, well, probably not the smartest thing. And he knows it, but he's got this very interesting backstory. His name's David. Holthouse, and when they talk about you know some of the abuse he had when he was younger just he has this interesting background that makes him a character who maybe throws himself in against all odds into very dangerous situations but uh yeah you, you it, once you get to episode three if it doesn't feel complete i would say chase it with a shriek of the mutilated so as you can have some sasquatch uh, i was just saying end with shriek of the mutilated you know watch all three <laughs> and then go right into something bonkers so you feel more closure than we got uh but yeah, this
1: one, it it does not, and I guess it's just because we're kind of used to this with a lot of the Netflix documentaries that really tie up all the loose ends. It yeah. gives you the kind of like, and this is what happened to this person, and this is who Q is, and it yeah. just like, it, we're used to kind of this full package. This is not, this gives you a lot of kind of closing information, and then he just kind of says- Well, there's that for you, and then that's it. Um, He's
0: looking for personal closure in a story that has always been gnawing at him. I guess, right? Yeah. And so, which is it? Yeah, that was good. So we do. I do recommend it.
1: Yeah, that one. It was. It was definitely even a fascinating dive, even just into um, kind of the marijuana business, because I think since it's been legal here in California for a number of years, I don't even think about it as like that type of activity anymore. Because like. You just go to Dr. Green Thumb and you buy all you want. You can even buy plants and grow them in your own damn yard and then come home. Um, but they talk in it about how 80% of the growers are still functioning on the black market. And so mm-hmm. it's like, you know, there's still like this incredible, incredible like danger to it. Anyway, it was real fascinating. Um, yeah, that looking was everything.
0: I agree. I think that was a good one. Um,
1: yeah. How, about, how
0: well, you had one other that we liked a lot. Should we so, jump into that one? The
1: Boys of County Hell. I just watched this one last night because Elric had recommended it, and this was just a wonderful breath of fresh air. Yeah, really um, fun. Yeah, this is just it's a it's a Northern Irish horror film. Um so where I'm from or at least my family is, um so it it is um starts out and it's kind of a rural tale. It really had kind of a letter Kenny feel to it, mm. um, where it's like just this rural group of friends who um, are constantly, some of them are constantly talking about, you know, we're looking for ways to get out of the this town and other ones are talking about, no, no, this is our roots, this is where we're going to stay. And they all kind of end up working on this like road construction that one of their dads runs um, a construction firm. And there is this Karn, Karen, depending on how you want to say it. Um, C-A-I-R-N. It's essentially just a stack of stones. Um, And we see them here in the States as like some artistic yoga, like, you know, Zen thing. Um, But it's just there. It's like just a straight up like stack, like pile of stones. And it's been there forever for as long as any of them can remember. And the local legend is that there is a vampire buried underneath. And if you move the stack... The vampire will come back to life and start taking down the town again.
0: Well, and, it, and the interesting, I mean, the part that I was instru- very early on, I was like, oh, this is curious because I don't know what the truth is. But the idea was that uh, Bram Stoker came to this town and was inspired by their local legend and yeah. this true story, and that spun itself into Dracula. And you're not allowed to say the word Dracula in this town. Because it's like an insult because that's not the real the real tale. So yeah. I don't know if any of that's like I'd have to look up uh, this, you know, what they're kind of playing with in this, if there's any truth to like at least the idea. But it was a lot of fun in terms of that Irish spin on it. And even the opening scene the, before you even get to the characters, they just give you a, you know, a little moment from later in the movie, which is super interesting because yeah. as the vampire enters a house, he doesn't he, he's not even seen yet. And blood starts to drain from the eyes and mouths and noses Nose. of these people. And I was like, okay, already I'm interested in, like, it how this works. It was
1: such a cool cold open because yeah. it's just this elderly couple sitting there, like, bickering about the television. She turns and she's like, I have a nosebleed. And then his eyes just start pouring blood. Yeah. And then they look over and scream. And whatever it was, it was just great. Yeah, it kind of um, just
0: pulls you in quickly. But, yeah, and then it's all these characters, you know, it becomes kind of like a, almost like Return of the Living Dead-ish. Mm-hmm tonally like in a good way like usually it's very hard to get to that tone i think but this film i thought did a really good job once things start returning um you know once once they unleash basically he has to obviously destroy the 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 kern as you say um which is brings the town a lot of fame and so everyone in the town of course would not be happy about that i don't think people really believe there's a vampire necessarily uh but after that things start going awry
1: yeah. And the vampire mythos in this, even why the stack of stones exists in the first place, that it's yeah. not just burying the vampire. Like there's a whole rationale behind the stones that was really cool. It was just a really, um, I call it a breath of fresh air because it was a really interesting take on something that I have seen done to death. And this was just a classic vampire tale with all of these different levels built into it and a completely different mythos than we're accustomed to. And so that was really good when they kept saying like, you know, Stoker got it wrong, the bar and it's named Stoker, but they talk about how Stoker got it wrong. And that's why they don't say Dracula and things like that. And then when they actually do kind of reveal, you know, what makes up the vampire and how they function and that they can stand in sunlight and that, you know, the stake through the heart doesn't really do anything. um, it, It really is kind of a fun exploration of vampire mythos
0: yeah definitely a little bit of fright night vibes in there you know mm-hmm. like it, but it but it has and the, when you actually see some of the kind of creature stuff there's a cool design
1: oh, yeah. it's, just,
0: it's just it's fun and this one is on uh just hit like very late in the week i think it hit shutter uh, shutter and yep. you know honestly after seeing jacob's wife and enjoying that a lot too for its kind of twist on playing with vampire but adding heart to some of that story in terms of relationship stuff. This is also again it's another fun twist, which is fun to see Vamp films kind of get a little play right now.
1: Yeah. Um, so I'm gonna move into the caller. Oh, um, the because the caller. So the caller, this is a vinegar syndrome title. Yeah. Which I think you had recommended to me a while ago. Um, this is from 1987. And essentially, it is um, a woman who I immediately uh, recognized from Funny Farm. She plays Chevy Chase's wife in Funny Farm. And she um, lives by herself. And one night in the middle of the woods in this very isolated area, and one night, Malcolm McDowell shows up at at her door, and he is all types of creepy but charming and says, hey, my car broke down up the road. Can I use your phone? And she at first is like, and then he's like, come on, I just need your phone. And then she says, sure, come in. And then all of these weird kind of things start arising where um, he seems to know a good deal of information about her. And then whenever she questions on it, he's like, oh, I was just assuming because of the blank or you're having people over for dinner because I was just assuming because of the blank, like he starts kind of getting all this extra information about her. And then they talk for an hour and a half before there is this absolutely amazing twist at the end. Yes, we can't touch oh. that. No, no.
0: This but, he, is- but it's always charged. I will say, it like, is. I thought I did. it's like a Harold Pinter play. Like, it always feels like there's stuff you don't fully get. And oh, yeah. it feels like power dynamics. And are these guys a couple? Or is this a kinky game? Like, you have no idea as you watch it. And I think that makes it better than just watching a, an hour of dialogue. But I know what you mean. You know, it's, it's charged they- with
1: something. They both yeah it's constantly moving it's very energetic um even though that neither of them ever shut up I was never bored I was always very much like where is this going cuz all of these different layers get inserted of who knows what and why and they clearly bo- and who's going to kill who at any given time um it felt like it had a similar setup to scare me, which I absolutely love the oh, yeah. film on Shudder from last year, um, where it's just kind of two people in a cabin and you're kind of waiting for one to kill the other. But however, whereas those were both amazing actor and actress in this, both of them feel like they're chewing the scenery and that they're in completely different movies. Um, mm-hmm. She is in some type of very passionate noir film and, and Malcolm McDowell is like doing some, I don't even know what he's got going on. He might be connected doing-
0: to the ending. Who knows? If it you watch might it be. again, you might have a whole different feeling.
1: No, um, no, no. I, they- I get where it was going, but that said, yeah, it gets fucking bonkers. Um, This one was just kind of like you sit with it for an hour of going, I don't know where the fuck this is going to see the last 20 minutes, which was just the most crazy twist ever.
0: Yeah. And it's also like for a play, I think for people who have to direct things that are like play-based it's a very good one to look at because the director does a very good job moving the camera around this one house space between two actors. Like I kept actually kind of marveling at like, oh wow, this is really well Mm -hmm. put together for something that could be totally dull. So, but Mm -hmm. I I really enjoyed, this was one I didn't watch on my own either. Brian told me he had gotten it and really recommended it. So I, I listened to him and was was pleasantly surprised with that one. Um,
1: And this is The Caller 1987 from Vinegar Syndrome.
0: Um, real brief, I won't go into it because uh, um, I didn't love it, um, but it was a new Shutter one called The Power, and it's getting, it's getting a lot of good praise. Uh, directed by Karina Faith. Um, and the thing about this film is it's very well made. It's very well constructed. It's a beautiful-looking movie. It's said 1973, even though I, I was sure I was watching something in the 50s while I was watching it. It just felt like totally not a 70s film. Um, and it's this young nurse who's joined this uh, new hospital right during these, this period where they have to turn off uh, the power grid And so they're going to be plunged into darkness that night. So they're all getting given different floors and there's a lot of tension there. Obviously the setup's really cool. And then really just very simply, it becomes kind of a spook ghost story where something is in the darkness that there's something in her past and you get some possession scenes and they're all really well made. But I found myself kind of the opposite of the boys from County Hell where I never once felt like I was watching something that I hadn't felt or seen before recently and so it never really moved the needle so I'm, I'm glad that people are coming you know being drawn to it and enjoying it i just for me personally it just kind of fell short uh the i thought the lead performance was really good rose williams was her name um but i'll, I'll add a second one just because that one uh, another new one was called bloodthirsty um also directed by a woman uh, this one's directed by amelia moses uh and you had mentioned a movie of hers from last year's festival i think called bleed with me
1: Yes, I like um, bleed with me. It so they both came out
0: in the same ball. year. Yeah it's, yeah, it's interesting. So they, I don't know if they're shot how far apart. Um, I made this made me want to see bleed with me because um, like made me curious. This seems a little bigger, even though the size of it's small. So basically, it's this, uh, the same actress I think from bleed for me. She is an indie singer, um, ready to kind of get ready for her next kind of album and uh, her and her girlfriend, her girlfriend's an artist and it's like, you know, it's just cool, super low key couple movie for a while. And then she basically gets a call from this really, you know, dangerous and quote marks uh, music producer who's, you know, has recorded some of the best albums. Uh, Phil Spector probably, you know, is the idea um, even though he's younger and, you know, a very vampire diaries, uh, you know, good looking kind of dude. Um, he is inviting her to come to his estate in the middle of nowhere uh, to record her next album, and she's like, "Oh, I got to do it." And her girlfriend, it's like, "I don't know about this." He, you know, there's a story that he killed his wife, and you know, out there, that kind of. Thing. Oh, actually, I had, duh, I didn't even put the Phil Spector part on that yeah, when I was watching. That
1: is Phil Spector.
0: <laughs> okay, there you go. So, but but he's better looking. So there you go. Um, and she the and, and I'm jumping ahead with one thing, which is in the opening scene, she imagines has a dream that she's becoming some sort of feral vampire, a uh, werewolf type creature, and eating a rabbit. So so she almost premonitory. So they go. But the two of them, the couple go to stay with this guy and he's very suave and he's slowly kind of getting in the head of the singer to kind of get to her real, the goods, you know, with the music. Uh And as that's happening, something in her is changing, sparked on something in him that is uh, very dark. and, And you just start to see a slow transformation movie is all I'll say. Without running that completely for any, um, and it and it goes and it goes all the way with that kind of uh that kind of uh, mythos. Again, it wasn't for me; didn't feel as fresh as Boys from County Hell, but it but it had some interesting moments, and you know, it's pretty intense. And uh, you know, I thought it was kind of cool to see another classic monster, you know, being treated in a different way. Also, I don't think we've had too many outside of, um. Uh, outside of the Canadian series, you know, uh, woman as werewolf type stories, you know, uh, howling obviously. Uh, so this, th- I don't, I don't know if that's exactly what this creature is, but it's something in that realm. So yeah, this one is still behind a paywall. I think it's called Bloodthirsty.
1: Excellent. Um. Well, the last one that I watched this week is In the Earth, which is Ben Wheatley's oh, yeah. new one. This was so impressive because it was actually shot during the pandemic. Apparently, Ben Wheatley at one point was just like. Hey, Reese Shearsmith and like three other people, let's go into the woods and make something and kind of center it around the idea of the pandemic. So it's really impressive in that capacity. It's very small for Ben Wheatley, especially thinking, you know, he's about to do Meg too. But this is very much like him showing that he can still do super small, like homespun DIY indie stuff. Um, The setup of this, is that it, there is a global virus that is killing people. And so um, this scientist goes to these woods, this like deep, deep, big forest park, um, looking for a colleague that he used to work with that isn't responding. And he's doing some research while he's there. And he uh, hires one of the park rangers to go into the park to look for this person with him. And once they start going, um, there's this whole like rigmarole of the virus and making sure he doesn't have it and working with these other people. Once they start traveling deep into the woods, they start finding kind of unsettling things. They find like empty tents where people ha- looks like violence had happened. Um, and they talk about how, you know, some of the people were fleeing the city um, once the, the pandemic hit and were living in the woods as a way to try to stay away from it. And once once they get there, they find that the scientist and her kind of crazy husband have found a way to kind of communicate with the trees, for lack of a better way of putting it. It's a combination of folk horror witchcraft um, that they're using very paganistic stuff and science. And between the two of them, you know, drink this magical stuff and say these magical words and, oh, yeah, we've got these electrodes all over the forest and this particular frequency being played. They have found a way to kind of communicate with the trees and it's pretty messed up. And, um, and everybody's going crazy all at the same time because they've been trapped in the woods for, you know, the entire pandemic by themselves. And so there's a lot of kind of um, stir craziness infecting every single person as well.
0: And there's some trippy imagery too, like that they play with, with like, you know, literally trippy, you know, yeah. they go with like a lot of montage ships. It, it's one of those ones where honestly, if it just, if the very last couple minutes had a bigger moment, I don't know why, if maybe that was just me, but I felt like, oh, the buildup is so good. And I didn't personally get that full payoff. No,
1: it did not have a, a huge ending, I will yeah. say. It just kind of, you know, okay, that happened. Um, it would have
0: been a good but, in theaters, though. I, I, I do think I I'd, I'd lost out from some of the impact by watching it, like, as a screener at Sundance, you know, on my computer or whatever. Yeah, I watched out.
1: it on my computer as a screener. Yeah. And it would have been wild to see. Because it did remind me of um, some of the visuals of Field in England. And yeah. that I saw in a theater. And it was amazing.
0: That's still oh, one of his only ones I haven't seen. Um, yeah. Don't know why, but I want to see the one.
1: Yeah. it's And it has the same kind of trippy folk horror nature to it. This is bigger. Um, and the acting in this is so good. It's only four people for most of it, but they're all just really great, great performances.
0: Yeah, the husband I thought was particularly great. Yeah,
1: Inside Number Nine.
0: Oh, he's from that show.
1: I didn't. Yeah, yeah, you didn't know that.
0: I did pick it halfway through.
1: (laughs) New season is coming soon. I cannot Uh, wait.
0: (laughs) Nice. Yes. Well, we know who will tweet about that. Yeah. Um. Okay. Well, just to end this part before we get into this, this will be our segue. Basically, I watched two things that segue perfectly. Uh, I watched both parts. Of In Search of Darkness, A Journey into Iconic 80s Horror, which is part one has been out for a few months and is about four and a half hours. Part two is about four and a half hours, both directed on on Shutter by Day. And I watched it in between in little pieces. And here's the interesting thing, and I'm going to be very honest about this. Uh, I purposely didn't watch this when it came out because I always saw the crowdfunding stuff around it. And I had in my head, because so many documentaries come out on horror, I just had in my head that it was going to be this cheap thing. And I had this very cheap looking production in my mind. I don't know why and I must have read a review finally that made made me go, oh yeah, I should check that out and I watched it and I was really impressed. I was like, has great interviews, really well done. It's it's like, you know, little snapshots but they cover so many, so much ground, so many movies, so many, you know, a lot of Carpenter interview, uh, a lot of just good people, mixture of like, you know, critics mixed with the directors who were there, the Joe Dantes of the world and then part, and I, I was really into it and the but part one is really the main movies that you expect to be covered and then part two had a lot of those kind of movies that, you know, get us excited More deep cuts, more, you know, just kind of random stuff. There was even a Sukumoto, like. Uh, interview at the very end I was like wow okay cool that respect you know you're getting tetsu but I really like these and I think if people you know anyone listening to our show would probably feel the way the, the same way I, it's just sometimes you're just wrong about something that you have an idea of what it might be in your head it wasn't based on anything except probably just social media posts that I was kind of like one thinking I, it was going to be a certain way almost like an extra feature on a DVD is what I expected but it was much more than that and just you know really comprehensive so there, there's eight hours of viewing for you alone if somebody wants to uh, uh, jump and I wasn't even doing it to, to because of what we were doing I was just kind of like curious and then got um, hooked um, so that's very much a good guide to the 80s uh, and then I watched uh, so basically I went to uh, a local dealer I asked for pure uncut Becca I asked for the hard <laughs> stuff I said what kind of Becca no no the purest most uncut Becca and he just handed me this little tinfoil wrapper I got home unwrapped it and I shot Voyage of the Rock Aliens right into my soul
1: Yes, you did.
0: And it is the most 80s movie I've ever seen. There's another one called Modern Girls, which was so 80s that I I was like, this feels like a spoof on 80s film. But of course, it was made in the middle 80s. I felt the same way about this. It's like, this can't be made in the 80s. It has to be the 90s, making fun of the 80s. And no, 1984... Set in a town called Spielberg. Um, Holy cow. Okay, well, we promised some people online we'd we'd do this. And I am actually glad I did, even though in the opening scene, I wasn't so sure what the big musical number, where, is it one of the Jacksons? Is it like one of Michael- It's
1: Jermaine. Jermaine, okay. Yeah,
0: I was wondering about that because he never shows up in the rest of the movie. And I was like, wait, what?
1: Rain Falls.
0: Oh my God. That's like
1: the best song. And I mean, the other songs are good. And you can tell that the movie is very much, it's the post, it's the 80s, post 1950s revival of like the rockabilly like the heartthrob and everything I mean it's what the Ramones were doing but it's much more kind of bubblegummy in this um where it's this very kind of 1950s rockabilly and in it it's going up against 1980s new wave yeah um which is just crazy but through aliens
0: and then you get Pia Zadora who to me is like the low rent Linda Blair. Like there's something about Piazzadora, where I'm like, I don't understand where you came from Piazzadora, and how you're singing in this thing, but this is, I'm having fun anyway. And
1: It's kind of on pitch at times.
0: Yeah. Oh, and, times yeah. Well. and then Craig Schiffer comes in from, uh, what we all know from Nightbreed, but he comes in, and I actually lost count of his abs. Like I was seeing, I was like, there's an, <laughs> ab, there's a, holy cow. And he doesn't they go know, he,
1: all the way up to his nipples. It's yep. just and from like
0: reminding you. Uh, yeah. and he's kind of an asshole in this, which is interesting. And then these, uh, these this whole these guys who start as little action figures that a robot basically reanimates on the ship down. Uh, they look very new. They look like Devo basically coming to Earth. And what was funny is they they at one point they're in this big what looks like a hospital, but it's actually the Atlanta Art Gallery. And that was the first time I was like, oh, that's where Manhunter is set. That's where Hannibal is. So I, I instantly knew as a Georgian. Uh, movie. Uh, they come down. I don't really know why they're here. They're, like, just checking out they're life. They're
1: looking for a new sound.
0: Oh, okay. That, that was totally, I totally didn't pick that. but yeah. I mean, it makes sense, because it's a musical. Uh, but then, of course, they run across the wrong sheriff, because if I'm casting a sheriff, of course, I'm picking Maude from Harold <laughs> and Maude. Uh, Ruth Gordon, whose last line in this movie is to a young man, let's get wet, and I appreciated that. Um, yes. An 80-year-old sheriff saying that was just genius. Uh, there's also Michael Berryman as an escaped uh, mental patient who you my favorite yeah, yeah my favorite scene in the movie even though i usually don't like scenes like this because usually we've seen the comedy too much he's chasing one of the, her friend pia Zordor's friends with a chainsaw and at some point it stops and it's broken and it cuts away from them and it's her basically helping fix it and she's like the go-to mechanic and she's helping him fix and they're bonding over it and by the end they like are on the same team and i was like oh that's sweet like yeah it's um, Cute. it's a crazy movie but there's one part i loved uh there's a lot of really funny parts like it's really strange um but there's a part there's a musical number that had the best opening shot ever which is all these girls feet the bathroom with the bathroom stall and you see all the panties of like six or seven people and it and it uh, tracks across all the panties next to under all their feet because they're all in the toilet as their feet are going back and forth and they're, they're singing dancing. and i was like all right that's a pretty amazing like funny image and uh you know that song was good too no it has, it has a lot of cute stuff and i I, w- I wasn't sad that i watched i thought it was pretty cool but it w- i truly wouldn't have known how to rate it like i went to letterboxd so i was like i don't is this a two-star movie or is it four? I think with the crowd, it probably was four. You know, I don't know. I have no idea. But I enjoyed yeah. it. And I don't wild.
1: either because there is so much in there that does not work that is campy and cheesy and yeah, just like, not Like bad,
0: bad John better. Waters. Like yeah. when John Waters wouldn't get something right, this is like that version of that at times. Yeah.
1: And But at the same time, there's something endearing about it, and you can tell that everybody thinks they're making something great, um, yeah. especially Pia Zadora. So, yeah, there's yeah. something endearing about it. Thank you for watching it yeah. now.
0: Yeah, no, I'm mean, I I glad I did. And, and it was perfect to watch today because it is, it, you know, the spirit that we're coming across with the 80s is just mm-hmm. that anything could happen and that things are bigger. And, and even though our hearts as film lovers might exist in the 70s for the kind of movies we you know, are excited to make. We're all born from the 80s, and 80s has the best movies. Like, There's yep. too many to count. It's like you could literally do 20 shows, and you would never get to what we're going to attempt to do part of today.
1: Okay, so Elric set rules for this, which were ridiculous, fucking ridiculous. So yes. it is...
0: I've got more. Let's we do are
1: counting down our top 10 10- 1980s films that are non-franchise North American that aren't Stephen King or John Carpenter.
0: Yes, that's... Or foreign. (laughs) Oh,
1: yeah, North American. North American. And the big thing was, we were going to do like what we did with the 70s, where we're just saying our top 10 non-franchise films. But then both of us realized that as soon as we were getting into non-franchise, it was basically just going to be a solid list of John Carpenter, The Thing, The Fog, They Live, and... Stephen King and so oh, yeah we were I,
0: literally, like- I literally my 10 could have been Carpenter and King yeah. fans, and I realized oh well I don't want to do that because everyone's can hear us any day talking about those kind of movies so yeah. it just felt goofy so I don't know if we'll cover Carpenter King at some point but if I mean obviously we will but it felt like let's keep this one to you know not just deep cuts but ones we really like that are a little less not part three or whatever Friday 13th like the outside of that realm and then we'll do two more episodes was my pitch Yep. Uh, so, and so next the next one will week- be franchises yeah
1: yeah, next week we're going to count down our 10 favorite sequels each. Yeah. And then the show after that, we're going to do our 10 favorite international horrors, potentially talking with an 80s horror icon as well. Oh, yeah, which has um, nothing to
0: do with foreign. Oh, it actually does because do do with- it's- he spent I a lot know. of time in a different country at one point. But yeah. yeah. So. but, but I, I thought that was important just because the Farns I mean, I I would have, I think I had three for sure in this list mm-hmm. this week, but it was bumping out so many movies that I was like, you know what, let's just do you know, let's let's, let's have fun with the eighties
1: and, and have let's a couple episodes. Yeah. Yeah. The eighties is such a saturated um, decade horror wise that yeah, we can stretch this out and um definitely make some really fun lists out of this. So at number 10, and same rules apply, if it's mm-hmm. higher on the list, you just say, higher on my list, and we hold discussing it. Okay, before um, we
0: start, predictions on how many overlaps, because the 80s is so vast, even when, vast. by doing this. I feel like there won't be that many.
1: I feel, I'm going to go two. I think we'll have two overlaps. Okay,
0: I'm going to go, th- yeah, no, two Two sounds right to me, actually, believe it or not. I'll, I'll, it. I'll, I'll say one, just for fun just so there's a difference if one of us win. But yeah, I don't think it's going to be... I think there's some people you could do this and you'd have the same, you know, six or seven of mm-hmm. the same. But I have a feeling we might poke around different spots.
1: I but. like some wacky stuff from the 1980s.
0: I tried to mix it up. I wanted to make sure some of the wacky stuff got in, not, and then the kind of movies that I just love also in there. So this will be interesting, but it is, it is so impossible to pin the eighties down because you want it just as you go, Oh, it's just all about bigger and crazier and goopier. Then somebody will make the super intimate, amazing, you know, uh, character. Yeah. 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 Something like that. So we'll see, let's see what comes up. Okay. Okay. So you're jumping
1: in with number 10. My number 10 is from 1987 and it is Stuart Gordon's dolls.
0: Oh, I'm so happy that one makes this list. It's such a good movie.
1: (laughs) This was one where I was debating what Stuart Gordon film to Mm -hmm. put in, obviously. Um, He had a number of great hits during the 1980s, but Dolls is one. This was so accessible for me as a kid. It hit me right around the same age as Ghoulies. When I was way too young to be watching these things, and I didn't realize until much, much later how fucking violent Dolls is, how bad it goes there um but because it was killer dolls you know my parents didn't blink at me watching it and i love it and it's this beautiful combination of Stuart gordon and charles band with brian usna producing um and so i've just
0: classic always, team yeah
1: just always had such a fun time with this and gordon was actually supposed to do a sequel it ended up getting canceled. And I love the setup on this one too. It's an old dark night setup where it's, um, you know, this creepy mansion in the middle of nowhere. And there's like this crazy storm and this family shows up and is like our car broke down. And then this other hitchhiking couple shows up and is like, we need to get inside from this. Yeah. Storm. It's, a,
0: it's a weird mixture of yeah. people. Like the parents are really awful. The the, the stepmom or whatever she is, is mm-hmm. just horrifying. I think it's Stuart's wife actually. Um, and, and then there's the, I only saw. It, oh, I saw it once a long time ago, but I saw it like a couple months ago, and it kind of blew me away because the effects were unbelievable. Good. All the dolls and all the stop motion, and then this giant bear that comes out of the woods. Yep, where you're just not ready for it. It's a giant, huge teddy bear, and it's one of those moments where you're like, "What?" Um, he's just always so good at surprising you. You know, yeah. he never sits on his laurels. Yeah, I think that's one of those really underrated. Uh, Gordon films, for sure. So
1: that was my number 10, Dolls.
0: Glad Dolls gets in there. Uh, my 10 has a similar energy, actually. Uh, my number 10 is uh, Toby Hooper's The Funhouse House um, from 1981. I slipped it in there because this I've been watching all those Canon films recently, which come after this. This is the last thing he makes before he goes in the, into the big canon verse, and this movie has is a grower. I think most of Toby Hooper's, you know, outside of Poltergeist and Chainsaw, which are just obvious out and out classics, I think all his films are growers. Like you see them once when you're young, and you're like, yeah, that was pretty good. And you see it when you're old, you're like, actually, that was really good. And by the end, they all become like kind of mini classics. And this one just has so much. I mean, a it's fun. Like it, it starts with a, a psycho homage, and, and, and you get to a, anything at a carnival. I as I mean, you went to Nightmare Alley uh, last year before all this, and, and any movie set in that space, I am always drawn to. Oh, yeah. uh, but this one goes gets just bonkers. I mean, it opens pretty early on. A guy in a Frankenstein mask uh, goes is is getting basically a hand job from a psychic hooker at the funhouse, and when that goes poorly, he goes into a rage, and later on we will see what's under that mask, and it's one of the creepiest, craziest-looking creature designs, Rick Baker uh, face designs in, in anything in the 80s. It's a wild, almost split white-haired head and face. And and then it's just, you know, a group of friends getting stuck overnight, uh, or I can't remember if they do it all, like on a dare, but they stay overnight uh, after they witness something bad happening by one of the carnies, and it just—it's got some cool, you know. Kevin Conway's and an older kind of classic actor. William Finley is in there, and it just gets really intense. Actually, I think it—I uh, didn't recognize the lead at the time. I think uh, what's her name, uh, Elizabeth Berridge. Um, But it, you get really stuck with these characters and the—and you know, using say the fun house, like literally the fun house, or Laughing Sally, the giant, you know, laughing woman outside. Mm-hmm. It's just got a creepy tone to it, and I think it's one that maybe people still sleep on of his a little bit. Um, you know, Scream Factory, I think, put out a nice disc. But I, I really like this film. It's it's great fun.
1: Yeah. That is a good one. A fun okay. house. 10 for Elric was fun house. My number nine from 1989
0: is Warlock. Oh, nice. That's cool. I mean, technically, there's a sequel, but whatever. That's that's not a, Oh, like...
1: shit. You're right. There uh, is. I
0: actually, I actually.
1: No, I am. I am totally. I am doing this. My 10.
0: Well, look just at when the, the sequel same. is. Look when the sequel is, because in doesn't my mind- doesn't matter. Well, but War, if it's War, in the Warlock, 80s-
1: Warlock Armageddon, it does not matter, because okay. I knocked off some of my other stuff. So thank you. I completely fucking forgot there's a sequel. You know what? My number nine just became Something Wicked This Way Comes.
0: Oh, is that in the was,
1: 80s? Yeah.
0: Oh, wow. That feels like a total mid-70s-
1: no, that's, oh, that's like okay. early 1980s. Wow, okay, um, and I will put this one in. It was number one on my runner-ups, but you know what? It's going in at fucking yeah, great, nine. Man. Um, yeah, this one melted my brain. It's still one of the reasons that I say I'm here. Uh, they showed us this, and I was in third grade, and uh, it was Halloween time, and you could tell it was like the teacher just needs to you know relax for a day, and so they put on something wicked. This way comes midway through the day, third grade. Holy shit. It was all we talked about in school for weeks. Was this movie and the spider scene? Like, mm. it was just the talk of the school. It was just intense. And Which it just Pam
0: Greer is in that scene.
1: Pam Greer is yeah. in it, Jonathan Winters. And it just um, captivated me across the board. Like, I loved this movie so much. And even now, like the palm scene. Have you seen this boy? What about this oh, boy? Yeah. Um, there's just so much cool stuff in there. Of course, at the time in third grade, I'd never even heard of Ray Bradbury. Um, but since having, you know, read every everything it's just a beautiful portrayal and still haunting and i every couple of years i hear rumors of a something wicked this way comes remake um to date no one has done it but there are still rumors flying so i'm hoping for something but this is one i can't wait to show my own kids i'm at the I don't think Marnie will be scared of the spiders just because we have tarantulas and she's going to be like, oh, fluffies, because our tarantula is so sweet. Um, but yeah, the rest of it. I feel it's like it's still-
0: more the ideas that are scary, like something yeah. is going to come and and you like kind of take your, your your deadened life and like make you a part of its attraction, which actually, you know, that ties pretty well with um obviously with Funhouse because it's. Yeah. I kind of yeah, I only saw it for the first time in my life this year or last year, really? uh, at Halloween when we did our Halloween one. Yeah, I'd never just never saw, or maybe I did on TV and didn't remember, but I loved it. I thought it was great. Yeah. Um, okay. Well, yes, and I did just look up Warlock. Actually, as three, three. So I think oh, that that's it. out. I, I, I have a couple that have like bastard sequels that I don't count. Like when somebody goes, oh, there's a part 2 20 years later, and you're like. And no, it never even went to theaters. I'm like, whatever. I'm not gonna let that ruin my my list. Sorry.
1: Well, something but. wicked this way comes. Though it is based on a book, um, does not have a sequel as of yet or a read.
0: Yeah. Um. Okay. My number nine, uh, cart before the horse, is from our friends in Canada. Pin. So you. Make- <laughs> <laughs> you, you guessed Penn and you guessed correct that I was going to bring up Penn.
1: Penn's my number two on my runner-up list.
0: <laughs> oh, okay. Well, good. No, yeah. Penn's a movie. I, it's one of like sometimes you just have a film you championed for a long time. And I saw this on VHS as a kid. Not a kid, but like, you know, whatever, 15 or something. And I just was instantly taken by it. I find it super creepy. Mm-hmm. Actually, I actually did the Projection Booth episode on this one and it was interesting to dig a little deeper. But this is uh, uh, by Sandor Stern who did part three or four of um, Amadeville. I think part four. The one with the the one, not the one with the lamp, maybe the one with the mirror Uh, yeah the one with the lamp not the mirror i think um that we we kind of dug that that was super
1: i liked the lamp one let's go uh
0: but this is this is very different this is a very serious it's basically these two kids uh who are whose dad is a doctor a kind of family practitioner played by Terry quinn so you're already in trouble because stepfather is your dad um and he basically rather than he's very strict on them and they're very close, but instead of ever like just talking straight to them, he basically, they come in and they talk to his anatomical dummy, and he basically voice throws to the dummy, ventriloquist style, and makes it feel like this dummy is talking to them, giving them advice. And Pin's like, you have to understand, children, that this is just how nature works. And he's got this very, you know, low-key, calming presence, and he always talks to her. But it's still creepy, and there's something and – and the doll's just amazing because you see the insides of the body. It's a it's a translucent kind of doll. It's It's really, really fantastic. So you get these two kids. They grow up. Oh, I think it's when they're still kids that there's a tragedy that happens in one of the creepiest scenes ever. I think where they're actually trying to throw away that the dad's going to throw away the doll. And there's just this whole thing that happens. Uh, I don't want, I don't want to run it for those who haven't seen it, but then you basically cut to these two children now growing up, still living together. And you realize that they are, there's this massively stunted growth. And especially the boy, David Hewlett, played by David Hewlett, um, who's went on to be in all of Vincenzo Natale's films. Um, and he, uh, you know, he's just not quite with it, and he still talks to Pin, and Pin talks to him, uh, even though we know Pin used to be Terry Quinn. And uh, the the sister's kind of maturing out of this relationship, and she's bringing home a boyfriend, and this starts to trigger uh, her brother, and then murder and mayhem and some really creepy uh, dummy stuff uh, happens. Pin is short for Pinocchio, that's why they call him Pin. Um, and there is a funny scene where David Hewlett goes to the movies. Uh, with a girl to see Scanners, which was made a few years before, and that's only funny because a couple years after this, he's the star of Scanners too. So, so he's watching a movie that he's about to go become the star of uh, the franchise. But this is a this is one of those um, again very underseen in America because it's never been on Blu-ray. The DVD's probably somewhat out of print, and I don't know if it streams. But uh, it's just I, I'm very strange to me that this one hasn't been easily easy to see.
1: Fun thing: the first time I saw a Pin, it was on laserdisc at yeah, a guy cool. I was dating's family yeah. house. They were fancy and they had like the whole laserdisc thing, wow. and they had Sounds just like a keeper. Uh, no, not <laughs> by any stretch, but he did have Pin on laserdisc, or they had rented it, or something like that's that. That's enough for that's me. The first time I saw it was uh, that night on laserdisc. I remember that one vividly. So Pin like, makes oh, the cut. These are so fancy.
0: Yep. Yeah.
1: Um. So number eight. For me, going to 1988, The Serpent and the Rainbow.
0: Oh, cool. For some reason that, you know what, in my brain, I don't know if that would have quite made my 10, but that that in my brain is like 91 or something in my brain.
1: 88. Cool, and yeah. I have to admit, Um. I'm, I'm sure this is not ethnographically correct in any capacity, uh, yeah. um, but I am a sucker for voodoo movies. This, oh, yeah. Yeah. Skeleton Key, I mean, I just I love voodoo movies. I find it to be, and I, I've got another one that's going to come up in a little bit on the list, Um. but I just find them fascinating. Um. And at some point, I should probably sit down and learn how just wrongy wrong they all are, but um for now i loved serpent in a rainbow when it came out i found it to be um just absolutely fascinating captain captivating it is um about an ethnobotanist who after seeing this for the first time when i was in probably middle school i was immediately like what's an ethnobotanist this looks like a cool job he's like in the rainforest drinking peyote and the next thing you know he's in haiti and essentially he researches cultures but in this case, he's been hired by a pharmaceutical company who is having him go research um, Haitian voodoo culture because they've heard about this particular zombification drug that they believe may like completely change the idea of anesthetics. And so they want to see what this drug is that is making people zombies. And is there a way that they can use it as an anesthetic? The nightmare sequences in this movie are absolutely stupendous. They are just Fantastic. There's this graveyard scene that is fucking terrifying and just some really good stuff across the board. There's also the penis scene. Most people right. just remember the penis scene, which is. Or is it a scrotum?
0: They- is it a scrotum that's being hammered? In you
1: know, they don't really show. I just assume it may have been a scrotum. That
0: seems um, to me like it would be a better torture move than the penis, but.
1: Okay. Something in the crotchal regions gets nailed to a chair.
0: Something that's usually not um, nailed to a chair. Yeah.
1: And and there's a lot of blood, and then the next day he he lives through it. He's just very unhappy. So it may be a scrotum. And it has one of the
0: best lines ever. Don't bear me, I'm not dead. Like that that for me, like that this is a very early, very important one for me too. Like when I saw this, it made a huge impression on me. Like mm -hmm. it was probably my favorite movie when I saw it. Like I was like, Oh my god, this is like and Bill Pullman's great. But if you had asked me to recount the plot without having read it again, I would have told you an investigative journalist trying to do a story on, like in my brain, the the Bondi stuff, but it's like none of that resonates in my head right now. So it's amazing what some of these stories were actually about. But yeah, that line, don't bear me, I'm not dead, on all the posters and on the commercial, the trailers, it was so like enticing. You're like, oh, from the guy who made Nightmare on Elm Street. It was like, come on.
1: This was a fascinating one to go back and research as I was prepping for this today because this was shot in the 80s in Haiti when they had so much political strife going on and it reached a point where the government told the entire film's crew, we can no longer guarantee your safety because there was so much civil unrest going Uh on. So they ended up picking up the entire production and moving it to the Dominican Republic and finishing it there. Uh Um, So, And you can see like that whole idea of the political unrest is like this backdrop for the entire story because you're seeing everything that's going on and how they're overthrowing the political leaders. And everything, and it's it's a really good backdrop for the movie. Um, but reading the backstory behind it all was really fascinating as well. So that was my number eight, Serpent and the Rainbow*. It's
0: also the one as kids where it was the first time we could go to school and go, did you know that zombies are actually real and this is how they're done? Like you're yeah. drugged and buried and Chloe. Like that was very exciting to me, um, which actually ties in very well to my number eight, which is one that wouldn't have made the list had I not rewatched it this week. So, because I didn't rewatch many of these, only two, I think. Um, and this was uh, coming out on 4k in about a week or two so everyone will be in luck that is gary sherman's dead and buried
1: Ooh 81. Good one. Watching
0: it again, I, I, yeah. I have good memories of it, but I didn't remember enough to put it on this list. Watched it again, loved it. It's so my bag, which is like seaside horror. I'd forgotten that it was a seaside town and it's Total super- Total nightmare logic. Yep. Very atmospheric, yeah. California seaside town. Very much an invasion of the body snatcher mm-hmm. kind of re-vibe. Uh, the visual effects by Stan Winston, there's a couple that are just unbelievable. The, the opening murder on the seaside is a guy who gets kind of, uh, a, a, a photographer gets tangled up in this kind of fish net because these because this woman who he's taking photos of tricks him into it and then all these people emerge taking photos of him and they burn him to death and it is
1: it's so horrifying, horrifying. It is,
0: and and then he's easy, okay. and he's like dead in court marks but he's like in in um you know he's in the wherever the hospital and there's a part where he's just completely burned and you think he's dead and he kind of just shoots to life for a brief second and it's so intense and just looks so good it's some of the best effect. i've actually made a note of who did the effects on most of these that are that are big effects ones because i was like i'm just curious the difference in who some of these names are
1: well plus way. i mean special effects people were like rock stars, yeah, rock stars from the 1980s period. i could name at least 10 from the 1980s i could yeah. name 10 now, but only because I work here. Yeah. Um, it's not quite the same as it was then with the rock star, you know, kind of Steve Johnson style. And
0: Oh yeah. No, the, and you get that in that eighties, eighties all over documentary that they, mm-hmm. the, the in search of darkness, they definitely have a lot of good um, love for that, but this one's um, super suspenseful. So it's the sheriff in the small coastal town trying to figure out why people keep being knocked off. Um, and then there's other reports that people see the dead person again, uh, but now on a different, role so the person who goes missing at the start the doctor goes wait that that's the dead guy who's now he's now pumping gas that's and and the cop doesn't believe him but he starts digging deeper and deeper and he starts getting a little suspicious of his wife as well because his wife is a school teacher but she's acting super weird and has all this film equipment in her in her closet and it's just it, and she's got,
1: telling her third like fifth grade class about satan
0: yep there's well there's a thing about witchcraft, <laughs> witchcraft and all this, that's it like magic witchcraft. And there's a great performance by Jack Albertson, who's uh, like just an old classic actor who plays the town morgue and uh, mortician. And he's fascinating and funny. Um, and Robert England has a very small role. I think it might have been his first big role, uh, first real role. Um, and it, and I don't want to ruin it because it really has got, it's not just that the twist is good, which it is. It's a great twist. It's how it looks. There's this thing with rear projection and all these. Film images that—that's all I'll kind of say without giving anything away. It's so atmospheric, and this—this this really sets me up. Of a, um, I'm a big Gary Sherman fan. You know, like I talked mm-hmm. about Vice Squad to, to Forever, uh, a movie that's probably gonna a certain Poltergeist sequel that will probably make our, um, you know, next episode. Like he—he's he, a good director, and this is a very good, uh, uh atmospheric horror film. So if people are looking to see i watched just the normal version on prime but it is about to be 4k so uh from uh our friend bill lustig so look out for it because it's a it's a keeper
1: yeah Dead okay and so that was your number eight going to my seven from 1983 videodrome higher i figured
0: so at least we have an overlap that's exciting
1: that's one
0: um, okay good uh, and I will say this: the only thing I'll say about that one before we get to it, had I based it on our theatrical screening of it, it might not even make my ten. But when I think about it in terms of when I see it on VHS, Me when too. I see it at home, it's okay, quintessential. Yeah. Anyway, we'll get to it. Uh, okay, so uh, then you do uh, a number seven. Okay, that's right. That's how we make up time. Uh, my number seven is one of my uh, favorite movies of this period, and I was just so on board with this one when I came to America. I felt like some people weren't talking about enough, and this is uh, Jack Shoulders, the Hidden. Um, from Ooh. 1987 love this movie i think it's the closest thing in the world to a carpenter film that's not by carpenter like it has the pacing the rhythm the kind of very muscular directing uh now technically i didn't even know this that's why i was like i don't give a fuck you're not going to take away my pick uh there's a hidden two from 19- mid n- mid to late 90s that I've never seen, don't even know if it's available, has none of the same cast. So I was like, you don't get to call yourself a hidden It's
1: sequel. not affiliated in it's any Just capacity. as hidden, too. It's I mean, they're actually, probably pretending. It's you know. not bad. Okay. Um, But it's not, it's not in kind of the same. Time. Well, it's
0: not that if you don't have Colin McLaughlin or Michael Norrie, it's like, I'm sorry, but so I decided I would not count that as my rules because <laughs> this is how I am with rules. I make rules that I break. Um, but this movie is, yeah, an alien parasite basically comes to earth and it takes over different human bodies and goes on crazy crime sprees. And that's what's so fun. The crime sprees, it's like a bonkers thing for an alien to do. And then suddenly Colin McLaughlin shows up literally feeling like he walked out of, you know, Twin Peaks or something, even though this is before Twin Peaks, uh, feels like Agent Cooper uh but he's kind of a little colder and a little weirder and he teams up with a very uh, michael nori who's a cop and uh there is a, there's a part where you know you have like burping guy who's one of the this older guy who is the thing for a bunch of this movie but then suddenly it becomes this beautiful woman played by Claudia Christian and it's just so kind of out there the way the structure of this movie and it's breakneck the whole way honestly this would probably be one of those movies that I most enjoy recommending people if they haven't seen because I get excited even to Clue Gulliger a small role uh, later Mm -hmm. on and Jack Shoulder I you know I met him once at a convention and I just was like you know I think he's a great director and a movie that isn't on my list that could have been is Alone in the Dark I think that's a great Great slasher oh, yeah, from that period that is so not typical at all and also very much you can see the origins of nightmare on elm street in it you know from the year before or a couple years earlier um and i think this would be a perfect double because we're not going to talk about carpenter i think this would be a perfect double feature with they live because they're totally different movies but they have a similar idea uh, in them one is more much more comic and you know satirical um but the hidden is just if you haven't seen it take a chance on it and trust me on this one it's a you know sci-fi action movie that happens to also have horror moments but a uh, really good movie
1: Excellent. So that was your number seven, correct? Mm -hmm. Okay. So moving into my number six is from 1986. And this is Ken Russell's Gothic.
0: Oh, okay. Well, you, that's definitely, I remember when we had Julian Sands on one of our shows, the, thinking, oh my gosh, this is a Becca pick.
1: <laughs> oh my God, yeah. And I actually debated which Ken Russell film to put on here. It was down between this and Lair of the White Worm. And when is Lair Altered the States?
0: Is that 70s or 80s? That,
1: no, Altered States is 81, I, I believe. I like Altered States. Huh? Um, and Altered States is great. Actually, I think the was nominated for an Academy Award for something. soundtrack or special effects effects
0: maybe maybe, um
1: but yeah it was nominated for something but after thinking about it it definitely came down to white worm or gothic but gothic spoke to me i saw gothic in high school and this for me was just this oh my god it's everything that i've been forced to learn in school about percy shelley and um byron And, but it's, and that night, that night that you always hear about the weekend where all of them were kind of stuck in this old house and started telling each other ghost stories and had a ghost story competition. But it is this kind of beautiful, conceptualized, um, you know, arty story about how it came about and that they were actually kind of evoking, um, fear as, as a manifestation and that she had just had this miscarriage or not miscarriage. I think she'd like her son had died in infancy or something like that. Um, and that that comes into it as well. And the idea of loss becoming fear. And if you don't deal with it, how it manifests itself, there is so much big stuff going on here. It is this mix of literature, high art, and really exploitive trippy horror all at the same time. Um, Russell's playing a lot with art in it. He's actually kind of mimicking some art. Most people know the cover, which mimics kind of the classic nightmare look. Um, But there's a little
0: guy on the edge of the the little
1: goblin dude sitting there, um, which is, I think the painting is just called the nightmare. Hmm. Um, But Gabriel Byrne, Julian Sands, Natasha Richardson and Miriam Sear, who you don't hear as much from now, but she is just amazing in this movie. And I just, Love how stylized it is. It's got allusions to Dracula and Frankenstein as well as kind of giving um, the portrayals of Shelley and Byron that we never got in school, that there was definitely some, you know, kind of bisexuality happening with the entire group, but they never explained that to you in 10th grade. Um, and so it was, and you know, then when I see it in this movie, I'm like, oh shit, that was happening. Wow. Um, and so kind of bleeding in all of this like reality with this heavily conceptualized, portrayal of The weekend, Um, Super arty, um, but my favorite movie. So I'd seen this for a long time. Um, By the time I was working at Fango, Chris Alexander was editing then and we decided to do a big expose on the movie and look back at it. And every couple of issues we would um, we not probably not a shock. A lot of prisoners read Fangoria mm-hmm. um, because they can't get like porn or anything like that. But for some reason, the prisons are happy to distribute violence mm-hmm. and Horror, And so fair enough. I get it. It's it's fake. So fine. I actually um, agree with that. Um, But so we had a lot of Fangoria's go to prisons and every couple of months we would get phone calls from specific districts explaining why they would be sending back all the issues. To um give us to give us back the issues because they were not able to distribute it because of something specific and usually it's like okay well there's boobs on this page or you know this was a little bit too risque and um, sometimes we'd even have them stopped at the Canadian border because of that because hmm. we put something too risque in the the thing but I will never forget getting the call from um one of the prison districts that told me he was sending us back like six issues of something and when I was like and what's the issue now he goes the eye boobs ma'am it was the eye boobs from oh, weird. <laughs> um because it was on the cover we put that on the cover oh. um of where she says do you want to look into my eyes and then she takes her shirt off and her boobs blink and that's it's right. beautiful but i will never forget getting the eye boobs phone call
0: that's so funny yeah so that movie i saw when i was whew, might have been 10 or 11 i rented it and I've never been more disappointed in my life in a movie as a kid. Like, i just so confused and bored. And, I, you know, it's one of those movies that if you see it too young, it means it's just too weird. Uh, but that's a movie. I, like, then I started again when I was a bit older and thought it was really interesting. But I, as an adult, I need to rewatch that movie because, mm-hmm. you know, I, I wouldn't have known any of the context of who those people were when I was a kid, you know. And that's what's so great about that on an 80s list because I was printing Warlock and probably seeing, Oh, it's the guy from warlock. So thank God you weren't allowed warlock on this. Otherwise you'd have two Julian Sands films.
1: Yeah. I think that would be okay. No, it's never too much Julian Sands.
0: Actually after meeting him, I agree with you. He was actually so much cooler than I expected him to be. Uh, and talking about how he had to be butt naked for Ken Russell up on the top of that building in the lightning and rain. And he's just like only for Ken Russell. So, uh, I will give (laughs) that. I will allow good stuff. Uh, so that's Gothic. Uh, number six is, is one I've talked, I've talked to you a lot about, and you just know how I feel about this. As, in terms of slashers, I just love the atmosphere of this one. It's got one of my favorite final girls, and that is uh, Just Before Dawn. um this is jeff lieberman who i felt bad about leaving blue sunshine off our 70s list i don't think of blue sunshine as that horrory i think of it more as like a weird psychotronic movie and Mm -hmm. it's kind of unclassifiable but i love it it's just one of my favorite kind of movies of uh, odd movies Uh, but i like jeff lieberman as a director too and uh this one is uh, really good it's it's one it's a nice atmospheric it's about a group of uh, kind of college-age friends who one of them is inheriting a uh, what's his name? Uh, Greg Henry from uh, Body Double is inheriting a piece of land, and so he's driving him and his friends up there, a couple girlfriend, you know, girlfriends, uh, and they're going to just you know, kind of up in Oregon. So it's very atmospheric the way it looks. It's eighty one, so it's very early. You know, it's pre a lot of the major slashers. You know, so I don't mm-hmm. think it was being influenced much by them to be honest. Um, and then when they get up there, there is uh, basically a stock and slash with this hulking. Uh, machete, you know, uh, kind of m- mad person that, and I won't ruin. There's a couple like fun twists in there, but then you also have George Kennedy uh, as a cop, like a local cop, kind of trying to figure out what's going on. But um, Deborah Benson as a, as you know, spoiler final girl, uh, is it has one of my favorite, you know, endings to how somebody defeats a, the bad guy that I've ever seen. It's just one of those moments that still surprises me if I see it, and she's great. And I it just, it's a good because it's somewhere between more of a I would say it's less of a slasher movie, more of a deliverance ripoff, mm-hmm. which I love. Deliverance ripoffs, I love it's rituals. Fun, and it's it is really fun, yeah, fun. it's fun. And they, there's a great technique of a, a, one of the bad guys who whistle, does a wh- uses a whistle, and it just creates for a. But there's a couple really good foreground, background scares in this when when somebody's um in the in the kind of uh, the stream or whatever it is the lake, and it's just a really good movie for those who haven't seen it. It's it's a finally out, out on you know been out on blue for a while. Definitely worth your time. Just before dawn.
1: Okay, so we are now at number five. Correct? I believe so. Halfway through. Okay, my number five is brain damage.
0: I can't. So close on mine. That might have been my eleven, and I am so glad it made it. I, I felt so <laughs> weird that because I I might be a I might be a brain um I might be a basket case. Ahead, just slightly ahead of it for me. And so I'm glad that I couldn't have done that one here so because of the sequel. So I am so glad you got this in here.
1: Yeah. So ba- uh, Brain Damage. This is 1988, Frank Hen and Lauder. I saw this one way too young. Hmm. Like, way younger than I ever should have. And it's weird when you see things young like this, you don't understand the connotations of it. Like I, of course, didn't catch up on, you know, the statements that it's making on drug culture or the statements that it was making on, you know, New York City in the 1980s. All I saw was funny little alien thing, injecting somebody into somebody's head and making them kill for them. And Zachary and the alien sings. And how fun is that? Um, This is such a wonderful aesthetic. Like I always use. This, when I hear people say, like, you know, oh, Hen and Lauder, he hasn't done anything in a long time, or, you know, his films were always campy. I look at this one and say, this is a damn good, well made film. It's got this beautiful style to it, it's gritty. But it has this gorgeous neon aesthetic that's going on in everything. It's got a color palette. It has a sensibility and a style to it. Like he was clearly going for something there. Um, And it's got a message behind it. It really does have something to say about STDs. It's got a lot to say, obviously, about drug addiction about everything that was happening in the the 1980s. It's got a lot to say about bodies just disappearing, like, you know, that people were just disappearing off the streets in the 1980s. And um, yeah, it's just out of all of Hen and Ladder's films, this is the one that still sticks with me because it does have such a fun, funny monster. But at the same time, it has a lot of social statements behind it.
0: And it's literally one you could say it's like not like any other movie no. there aren't many movies where you can still do that, but that movie still stands apart and I agree in the eighties he's so interesting, such a unique voice mm-hmm. and and you need people like he's kind of like John waters in horror you need somebody who is not PC like there has to be a quality some, especially at that point to touch on topics that might date poorly now. Like I don't know, I know basket case obviously has moments that feel ooh really icky now, but it's still important that somebody was going there so you could even have that conversation. But yeah, I I love all those films. Um, very glad he made his cameo um my number five has a moments like like uh, those moments that you're talking about with the neon and that is my Stuart gordon inclusion uh which i watched again last night for the first time in a couple years which is from Aww. beyond uh because i was obviously thinking about uh, i think society is just so freaking amazing and the effects are so amazing but i was just like but in terms of film you know like you know actual horror film to me like from beyond is just you know, a superior movie uh, in terms of tone and, you know, mm-hmm. and so that's why I kind of, I was deciding which film by Stuart Gordon slash Brian, that kind of team. Um, so anyway, this was, this was fun. Cause we had just talked to Barbara recently and, you know, I know reanimator inside out. That's one of the movies I just, I've seen it so many times. I know it so well. Um, You know, I could quote everything. And this one I've seen a number of times, but I always feel like there's parts I forget or didn't know about. And it's basically, uh, you know, you got Jeffrey Combs in in a house with this amazing creation that he turns on. Uh, He's working with this other doctor, very similar setup to Reanimator in that sense, with the senior doctor played by Ted Sorrell, who's just kind of into S&M and like messing around with a young woman. But they've created this machine called the Resonator, which basically allows you to see beyond the infinite uh, and feel more things and just kind of expand perception. And,
1: and my pineal gland. I
0: know. No, that's the stuff I, when I was young and I saw this, that stuff, the part where Jeffrey Combs changes, and it's got the bald mm-hmm. cap. I always found that too almost too disturbing for me. Because it I mean, is like, this one. You know? I
1: couldn't watch when I was yeah, a kid. I definitely hard. tried, but it didn't attract me the way that Reanimator did. Where it it I gets kind of repulsive yeah. over and over. This one I've seen maybe two or three times because um, the burn victim stuff and Barbara uh-huh. Crampton goes all S and M at the end. It gets
0: uh, bizarre. yeah, and when so yeah, no, it gets really crazy. So they basically turn on this machine. Something comes from this other dimension that's actually all around us. We just don't see it and it bites the head off the senior doctor so he disappears everyone thinks jeffrey combs is crazy but barbara crampton's like well if we recreate his you know his test maybe we can find out what happened that night and she's this really by the book and it's you know what i forget is this is barbara's total movie like mm-hmm. Jeffrey Combs is not the lead of this Barbara Crampton is a hundred percent the lead of this movie and I thought oh, that yeah. was I'd kind of forgotten that because just because we all know you know Jeff's work so well from that period and uh, so it was really cool to see her own this movie and she gets to explore some really interesting sexual things and changes that she goes through in the film um, and then Ken Foray you know from Dawn of the Dead comes in as the cop who's meant to kind of watch over things you got uh, some great effects work uh, by a couple of people actually you've got um, one of them just totally slipped my mind but Mark Shostrom. Um, who does a lot, you know, Phantasm 2 and a lot of other things, is in there. And I can't remember who the other one is, but it's another one, you know, another one of the biggies, basically. Um, just going for it, and with the goopy effects, because it's not Scream Matt George from um, who did Society. Society, but it's somebody else. Um, but they're the parts where basically the Doctor returns through the Resonator, and he is
1: Pretorius.
0: now victorious is now fused with these creatures, and it is just—it's got some of the most amazing horror scenes you'll ever see. Like literally, it's just part where he kind of squishes, squishily takes off his face. And he's just gleeful. He's gleeful in his um, desire to pervert the world, you know? And it's it's really something. And it's like, you know, the one of the best things about Steve recorded the movie's like 85 minutes, you know? Yeah. And it fits in so much. It makes you rethink how much you can get done in 80 minutes, right, in a movie. Because usually 80 minutes to me may, means a little indie, we're one location. And even though there's not a lot of locations, but it, it fits in so much bang for its buck. And yeah, so- this is re- well worth a revisit.
1: For the longest time, I would always get confused and think Cronenberg had done mm-hmm. this movie. And it feels like this is the most Cronenberg movie that Cronenberg did not direct.
0: Yes, it's definitely very body horror in that way. Yeah.
1: yeah. Okay, so onward to number four. I told you I was going to have another voodoo movie on my list. And at number four is Angel Heart.
0: I, 19- I knew it had to be on here. And oh to be God, honest, yeah. might have been why I didn't pick it in the end. Because I was like, you're going to pick Angel Heart. You have to pick Angel you Heart. I
1: know so it. Um, Directed by Alan Parker. This one was another that I saw in high school and it just blew my little mind at the time Um, because I'd never seen, I I think I'd probably seen Jacob's Ladder, Mm. um, which has kind of that like shocky, oh my God, I can't believe this. I have to go back and rewatch every moment to see how it's woven in twists to it. But Angel Heart by far became my jam. Um, This is, this is the one film, well, there's a number of them, but this is one I have been like proselytizing to people for decades now. Um, Based on a book, which at some point I actually need to sit down and read, Lisa Bonet post-Cosby and apparently like some of the Lisa Bonet sex scenes, it originally got rated X and they had to cut like 30 seconds worth of the sex scene out. And it's still a really graphic sex scene
0: with Lisa
1: Bonet. Um, It's intense and then there's blood coming down. It's just heady and beautiful. And somehow this movie, it's neo-noir. The, it has this very kind of noirish tone to it. It feels like a noir film, the way that it's paced out, the way that he's investigating, but it's got this very kind of dreamy, dusty quality to it. And I'm so always impressed with it because it goes from the middle of New York City to New Orleans without a style change. Hmm. Um, somehow the same kind of tone that is being applied to New York City is applied to New Orleans. So, and, and you feel a slight Change, but the aesthetics don't change or anything like that. Like it just all exists in this perfect universe. Well, even if it didn't have
0: horror elements, Alan Parker's so good, it would just be a great noir. Like even if if you took all that out, you'd be watching a good private detective Mm -hmm. downfall type movie. You know, it's it's really well made.
1: The score is incredible, and I still consider this to be Mickey Rourke's best film. I mean, like yeah, The Wrestler, great, great, all that stuff. Yeah, he had a few back
0: then, but this is this is definitely one of my favorites too.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah. So that is 1987's Angel Hearts.
0: When Robert De Niro eating an egg. Um, so. I got
1: a thing about chickens.
0: Yeah. There's there's <laughs> so many. It's Yeah, we talked about this a little bit when we did Heart Noirs, right? So. Yep. But, but I really, if somebody still hasn't taken the plunge, do so before it's all ruined for you, because it's, you know, it's terrific. Um, okay, I knew that one was going to make it. That was one of the only ones you I knew. i know it. Uh, my number four is another one of those ones I saw young, and just I just love it in the way that I love The Hidden. It's similar. It also has a, a ripoff that, a sequel that I've never seen that was like 20 years later. Uh, and we are talking about The Hitcher. Um, 80, I love The Hitcher. Yeah, I think it's just one of the best made action horror movies i think ricky howard gives one of the creepiest performances ever it has one of the craziest scenes right in the middle of this movie that is just unbelievably crazy uh something that happens to jennifer jason lee as the wait uh, the waitress at a truck stop that's just bonkers Uh see thomas howell you know when i was young i don't know if you know, coming off Soul Man, that's hard, big shoes to fill. Um, maybe the least politically correct movie in the history of the world, uh, Soul Man, but uh, but he's really good in this, and he's very vulnerable. Uh, this was written by uh, Near Dark's uh, co-writer, Eric Redd, who also directed films, but he didn't direct this one. Uh, he directed the greatest film in the 90s, but I'll save that for the 90s, because me and you will be fighting over that movie. Um, <laughs> I'll look forward to that. Uh, this is uh, just, it's basically a guy, young guy, like, young 20-year-old, has to transport a car uh, to another state. He's driving along at night, and he's in the and the lightning he s- thinks he sees some somebody a, a side, car on the side of the road and maybe like it looks like maybe somebody's hurt, but he kind of sees this guy but keeps going. He doesn't think about it. Along the way, he picks up a hitchhiker, and that's why it's called the Hitcher, and it's Rucker Hauer, and uh, you know, basically becomes this iconic character who is based almost like an existentialist killer, right? Like it's almost like I'm doing that. it's it's like the priest strangers, like, why are you doing this? Because I can't. You know, why why not? Like, and it's, and it becomes, when people say cat and mouse to me, this is always what I think of. It is the ultimate cat and mouse, ultimate back and forth, ultimate kid, you are out of your element. This guy, even if cops catch him, they're not going to hold him. It's got a little bit of Terminator to it as well, I would say, and that kind of vibe. Um, And definitely more action-y in a lot of ways, cult than maybe straight horror, but uh, it's just never gets old. And it's, again, it was a, a staple from what I understand of HBO, but unfortunately that has made it much harder now, to see, I still don't think there, as far as I know, I don't think there's a Blu-ray to this movie, which is crazy, mm-hmm. given how, to me, what an important movie it is from that period. Um, but yeah, I love this film, and I, I think everyone's giving their best work in it. Um, probably my favorite Rucker film
1: excellent oh my gosh i haven't seen that one in so long i watched it when the reboot came out like 10 years ago. oh yeah yeah the reboot um i went back and watched the original but yeah i haven't seen it since then um so i need to check that one out again okay we're at number three number three
0: before we go on i think we've only had only had one okay which we haven't talked about yet but yes
1: yeah um so my number three you knew i was gonna put one of them on here because guess what's in the 1980s Nineteen eighty nine, the year of aquatic horror. So I was, I was tempted to put all of them. Oh god. And then I was okay. like, Oh god, no, I won't do that because Elric would then make some rule about no aquatic horror or something like that. Um, so instead, I picked my favorite of the grouping, and that is Leviathan, bitches.
0: And eh, you can't. Yeah, I can. No, one of the other rules was Peter Weller films, remember? Uh, no, Peter no, Peter that's that's
1: not a rule. That's not a what? rule.
0: We'd have, un- I don't origin. And- <laughs>
1: nope, nope. Um, so 1989's Leviathan is my number three. This uh, is by far my favorite between Deep Star 6, Lords of the Deep, oh, yeah. The Abyss. I love Leviathan. All of so them cool. from this time period. Leviathan's my fave. Um, and this was made, actually, um, with them trying to beat... They were trying to beat Abyss. I believe this is Dino De Laurentiis, I want to say, um, directed by George Cosmatos. and the father
0: um, of uh, Mr. Mandy himself.
1: Parents. Yeah, I'm 99% sure this is a Dino De Laurentiis film. Because hmm. um, I know... He, oh, no, wait, I'm sorry, my next one. I knew he'd okay. come up somewhere. Uh, sorry, my bad. No, it is not. Um, but it was... This was one that was trying to beat the Abyss. And so what a lot of these films in 1989 were doing was they were trying to beat the abyss out. And the only thing that they knew was what they'd seen in the abyss trailer, which was okay. Group of people. They seem to be kind of working class miners at the bottom of the ocean. And then they find something. And so that's exactly how deep star six and Leviathan came to be, um, was just taking that very vague concept and then trying to form a film around it. So it was a knockoff film trying to beat the abyss to its release date and, uh, made by George Cosmatos. I just love this concept. Like, this one was so much more fun to me than any of the others where group of people are on the bottom of the ocean. They are mining, I believe. They're always mining. They happen upon a Russian ship that is for some reason at the bottom of the ocean. So they put on some scuba gear and go on to retrieve all this stuff. And on it, they find all of this captain's log about how there's this infection taking over the crew. And then they happen to also find a bottle of vodka. So they decide to share the vodka and then the infection welcomes onto their ship and the infection is it's a genetic mutation that spreads amongst the crew it starts with Daniel Stern and then it kind of goes from there and it causes them to kind of mutate um and it's it's really bizarre and there's some definitely some like you know the accuracy problems with how it's mutating. There's a giant um like lamprey looking thing at yeah. one point. And ultimately their bodies all kind of get combined together into this giant monster that Peter Weller has to fight at the end. Which um, is
0: amazing. Like, again, it's yeah, kind of it's so- great. almost like society or something.
1: <laughs> yeah. Um, it's got Ernie Hudson in it, Daniel Stern, Peter Weller, Meg Foster. This was just an all-star cast. Meg Foster playing um the bitchy owner of the mining corp corporation who's trying to keep him down there and keeps telling them that there's like some storms so they can't bring them up. And uh, in actuality, she's trying to contain the infection. Um, yeah, there's just so much going on in this, but beautiful effects by Stan Winston.
0: Yeah, now this one's a blast. It's It, it was always fun when people rediscovered this or discovered this, because when mm-hmm. we're young, it seemed like a staple. There's a movie I need to recommend you if I haven't, that is... Very similar setup to this one. It's not deep sea. It's above. They're on an oil rig. So it's between this and um, underwater. It's on an oil rig in the middle of the um, Antarctic offshore. And I, I discovered it last year or so for a TV movie episode. It's from 81 called The Intruder Within. And it was so good. it's basically they are mining on this big oil rig and what they find, and it's very working class, very similar. So it's crazy that it's from 81 and they discover these like weird, like black rocks and they Mm -hmm. realize there are some sort of eggs. And then before you know it, there's a soup monster thing running around the ship, killing them, but it's all done very realistically, like not, not the creature, but like the characters and it would fit like perfect Leviathan double. And so you, you could call it a quadricara because the horrors come from the, the deep, even though, you know, the characters are never underwater. Um, well, so I think, you know, you definitely I lost ha- your time.
1: I have added that to my list. And you know how I, I said um, you know how I said that this was not a Dino De Laurentiis, that I was confusing it with my next one, which mm-hmm. was a Dino De Laurentiis. Um, I lied because um, although it doesn't say Dino De Laurentiis, it's Aurelio De Laurentiis and Luigi De Laurentiis. So they're all still there. Daughter, maybe. It's still... Yeah, it's still a traditional De Laurentiis ripoff film.
0: Interesting. But yeah, so if anyone wants to, to pair okay. that with The, the Intruder, Intruder Within. Intruder
1: Within, I have it's just added to my queue. From
0: 81. I think it's on YouTube. I think that's how I saw it. And, you know, but it was, it was really surprisingly good nice. um, for what, what I, okay, number three is the only film on this list that I would say scared me when I saw it um, and scares me today. There are, it's hard to to scare me in that like you know in the in the way that's unnerving still and i think this is one of the um, most disturbing movies i've ever seen i think the first half is a complete masterpiece and then the second half is very interesting but not quite at the same that's why i said 3 and not 1 and that is the entity um, I'm putting on that instead of the changeling as much as I think changeling is one of the great ghost stories of all time. It's not a personal one that I watch much. Um, mm-hmm. It's just a great story and really well made, but this movie is like, there's so many like, I, A, I think Barbara Hershey gives one of the best performances ever in a horror film. I think it's one of the most fearless and just vulnerable and intensely disturbing performances. Directed by Sidney J. Fury, it's 82. So it's any, anytime you're looking at 81, 82, you're looking almost at 70s movies. You know what I mean? Like, it's like movies that probably started their gestation in the 70s and are only getting made at the start of the 80s versus when you get to the end of the 80s. Uh, but Barbara Hershey and Ron Silver are both in the Stan Winston does things. That when I was young, you know, especially with her nude scenes, they're so disturbing. But watching um, behind the scenes, it's almost a relief that she she is naked under a cast of herself, and then Stan Winston's hands are coming up over her body and to the to the body above to to make it look like fingers, invisible fingers are on her body and stuff. And it's just the attacks of it. It's not just the the that it's rapey and you know, can you think of something more terrifying than saying you can't see attacking you? It's like, it's truly awful. But And then then to go one step further, no one believes you. Uh, All your friends and family, no one will take you seriously, and that becomes a major part of kind of the theme of this film. Um, And, you know, obviously it's based on, you know, stories that were told to be true stories about Doris of Bither Bither Um, in California. You know, we don't know what the true, you know, we know her recounts and they sound really shocking and scary. Yeah. Um, And she honors that. It's a
1: horrifying real life story. Yeah. Um, Which, yeah, she never relented on. She always said, you know, this is, this is real. Yeah, um, it's
0: just that an invisible demon. But the way, the thing that really impresses me beyond her performance is the way the camera and sound are used during the attacks. It, mm-hmm. it can really get under your skin. And, and I, I challenge any horror fan, no matter how hardcore you sit down and watch the start of this, it's still shocking. And not not that many in the '80s are shocking in that way. This in my one's mind. hard
1: for me to get through, yeah, um, because it's not just a haunting; it's a sexualized haunting. Yeah. It's it's so much harder to get through than any of the normal kind of poltergeist films. Yeah, I don't
0: think it's one that you want to be watching all the time. But mm-hmm. it, it may you know Charles Bernstein's score and the. I like, don't know what's the score and what is some of the sound effects like the dang, 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 as yeah. the camera is attacking. Um, but yeah, no, it's really it's really something. So I had to put it up high just to you know get on the radar.
1: My number two is produced by Dina T. Laurentis from okay. 1986. Trick
0: or Treat? Oh, well, of course it had to be on your list.
1: Of course okay. it did. Um, long live Sammy Kerr. I you know what a, a huge real musician. metal fan. Yeah. <laughs> you know what a huge metal fan I am. Sammy Kerr is not a real musician. My um But this one, you know, there was so many heavy metal films that came out in the 1980s. Rock and Roll Nightmare is another one of my fave. Black Roses is always fun. Um, There's a couple that we see coming into the 90s as well. But this was my film. Um, This is Gene Simmons and Ozzy doing cameos. It's exactly what it needs to be. It is this kid played by Skippy um, from family ties who discovers but he's like a badass rocker roll kid he's very much like ostracized like the other kids in the school like think of him as like this like white trash grit and who's um, just obsessed with metal he's like the outcast and He discovers that one of his favorite idols um, from the rock and roll metal world, Sammy Kerr, is from his hometown. And he's like, oh, my God, if he can do it and get out, so can I, his music speaks to me. And then Sammy Kerr dies on stage in this horrible accident. And um, through this kid and a number of other circumstances, Sammy Kerr comes back to life. And starts taking down people in the town in very much kind of a curse-like manner. It is so badass. It has beautiful hair. The leather pants are so freaking tight. It's just gorgeous. I love Trick or Treat. And the music's actually really good in it. You saw this one recently, right?
0: Well, I saw it it, whenever the last time um, at Salem Fest, and I believe it has a conservative uh, person playing a conservative in there who's not so conservative, right? Who's that? Uh, Ozzy. Ozzy's in there, right? Uh, I always like that. No, I really like it. It's one that I just didn't think I would like, and I thought it was a blast. So uh, super. And I actually really liked, I think I told you recently on a, on a Patreon, how much I liked Dead Roses, which Mm -hmm. I hadn't seen that one either and caught up to that and just thought that, I mean, totally different movies, but I thought that was a lot of fun.
1: You Um, need to see Rock and Roll Nightmare.
0: Oh yeah. Cause the same director, right?
1: Yeah. You will. uh, Well, Rock and Roll Nightmare is the same director I think as Black Roses.
0: Black Um, Roses. That's what I meant. Yeah.
1: I'm fairly sure they are at least the same house. No, I think
0: it's the same director, both... right? I think I looked it up. and
1: Yeah, they both have Thor, I believe. Okay. Um, so who's a Canadian okay, rock star. Yeah. Um, it's been a long time since I've seen Black Roses. Rock and Roll That's Nightmares, fun. a lot of fun though. Um, but yeah, I absolutely love Trick or Treat. Even if you are not a metal fan, this is just a really fun 1980s movie kind of, you know, in the same line as The Gate. And it's just, it's, it's a blast.
0: Well, my kind of metal is uh, a VHS tape stuck into your vaginal slit <sighs> in your chest. That's how I do metal. Uh, okay, so Videodrome is number two here. Uh,
1: my number seven.
0: Yeah, it's just, I feel like there's no way, unless you really just don't like Kronenberg or this particular film. It, to me, just for a film about the 80s, this is like the cross-section of all the craziest stuff you're doing in the 80s mm-hmm. effects-wise, but also a very cerebral director trying to make you know a movie about and and the fly you know is obviously a sequel so it doesn't appear on this list i think the fly is like a masterpiece but the fly is not as risky as videodrome videodrome is his razorhead it's essentially a movie that you know is really quite out there uh you got james woods who you know now obviously is politically like a blah, but but you know was really good at playing these kind of guys uh in the 80s i thought he was great in the 80s uh as a tv programmer looking for that next thing what is the? and it's very 80s it's the perfect 80s movie in that like how do we push this what what's the next level you know it, it, kind of like i'm sure where we are now with uh with entertainment in a sense almost content what is content how do you push it uh and then uh, he comes across uh, debbie harry's a uh, talk show host and he comes across this channel where you get it's almost like the resonator in a way you know with Stuart gordon stuff it's yeah. like this other thing this broadcast from another place that's bordering on snuff stuff and then it brings in the surrealism in t- in through the screen into his world into his mind uh into oblivion as it were uh you got rick baker and steve johnson together on effects so rick baker leading and steve johnson and there are so many moments in this i can't shake but like the the most true thing I heard, and we've probably talked about it maybe even here, but was hearing Panos Cosmatis talk about this one because I had this exact reaction, which was seeing it on VHS. It's it's one of the greatest films in the history yep. on VHS. And then seeing it on TV, great. And seeing it on video. But I saw it 35mm, and it yep. felt didn't work.
1: Weird. It, it felt was, weird. It
0: felt weird. I mean, it's still interesting, but I wasn't as engaged. It felt a little like sound effects of footsteps. I was more aware of everything being a bit fake or something, Mm -hmm. which is just so weird, but it's a movie called Videodrome and seeing it on film didn't work. So that's my, my weird one of the weird only times in my life where I could say a movie. And he said the same thing. So when I heard in the interview, I was really struck because we had just had that experience. Yep. Um, And it was kind of fascinating because it's such a good movie. So maybe it really is targeted about television and TV and things that are on late night and
1: blurry images, you know, and I think that it's also something that like you have to understand that time period because okay. I've tried showing Videodrome to my students and they don't get it, nor right. do they like it. But when I show them Existence, they're like, oh, shit, I get this. Yeah. Um, the idea of video games kind of becoming a reality to the point where it's hard to tell the difference. Um, they get that because of the online world that we live in now. But Videodrome, it just does not hit with my students. But when I saw, I saw Video Drum in high school, and it's a very vivid memory for me because I watched it on VHS. And I remember being floored by everything that was going on. But at the same time period, I found it so concept, contextually trippy while watching it, the idea that through VHS, we live on forever, that we are literally, you know, can be kept alive, that somebody could just continue to send out videotapes that we had taped. And thus we are perceived as alive. And I found that to just be so mind blowing at the time period. Um, it really was something that I feel like you had to be a part of the VHS culture the idea of these little UFS stations popping up, the idea of cable, of like the basic cable network that we had in my tiny little hometown in Virginia where, you know, one second it was the school board's public hearing and the next second it was some guy playing, you know, a banjo and then yeah, two seconds so weird, later yeah. it was some guy like doing, you know, your your um, horoscope readings.
0: Well, there was, this, there was this performance artist who I always thought would make a good movie. I think there's a documentary on him recently called Chris Burden and he did this amazing piece that he's most famous for where he got into an art gallery. He stands on one end of the art gallery. On the other is a guy with a rifle. Everyone's sitting there and he lets the guy shoot him. And he actually shoots him in the art gallery, like in the arm. And the whole point of the art piece was for people to stop him. And he said that afterwards. He goes, I didn't think people would let this man shoot me. The point of the art piece was stop. So he was this kind of artist, did these crazy things. And in the late 80s, and I always found this so fascinating, he paid for, he paid for a late night spot they didn't know what he was going to do. They just thought it was going to be an ad. And it's him on a entire pavement of broken glass. His hands and ar- arms are bound. He's on his chest and he's moving closer and closer to the camera, bleeding. And that played on TV. So it's very clear. Like, and I, when I, I've seen stills of it, I was like, holy shit. And when they realized what it was and got all the complaints, it just suddenly disappeared. And you're like, that is so out there, but that would have been like, if you tuned in and saw what was happening in Videodrome, it would have been like, Oh, what is this S thing yeah. happening?
1: And yeah. even the sex stuff, there was the bird box, which was Robin bird. And she That's interviewed good. porn stars and they oh, were yeah. all half naked. And it was all, and it was wonderful stuff. Cause it was all about safe sex. And this was in the eighties. The and so she's talking about things like condom usage and dental dam and how to properly put on a condom and things like that. And it's happening on public access. And then at the end, of it she would always sing this song called um babe I want to bang your box and they would all stand up and like dance around in their negligee after talking about the adult film that oh my they god I hope this
0: is in. on YouTube somewhere because that's like...
1: there's actually they have retro shows now from a fan group called the bird brains who still follow her but I will I will totally see how
0: interesting Robin
1: I... bird links um, you know,
0: I feel like t- that's where TV's going wrong. Like everyone's talking content and wants all the <laughs> slick stuff. I want more cable access. I want weird. I want so late night bizarro. Oh,
1: because yeah. the area of Virginia that I live in is only 45 minutes from Baltimore. We used to get Baltimore public access and we had Captain Chesapeake. He was like this old man dressed up as a pirate and he would, it, was, it was like the most cable access kids programming you could possibly think of where like, you know, you just feel like something sinister is going on, like he's taping this out of his garage. Oh, but I watched nice. Captain Chesapeake forever um i was so always yeah, bummed it, i missed
0: out on z channel by the time i moved oh
1: yeah
0: I, i'd love to see that come back because i know Garris started all his interviews on that channel between amazing movies so yeah.
1: you know, now it's, it's, it's public access it's youtube you know anybody it is go that's
0: there, true and tiktok and all anything. these things but, it, but i still wish it would come on my tv because yeah. that's the thing that's when you're most vo- open to it like when you just sit down and you channel surf if something weird like that came on i would totally be watching so <laughs> okay you're number one here we are
1: okay my number one
0: Am I right or are you going to be right in terms of Um, I picked one, you picked two. We've only got one. I
1: honestly, I'm going to bet we picked the same number one. That's a bold choice. I know. I'm saying that we picked the same. I'm going to guess that
0: we didn't because, but I see on my near misses some really good titles. So.
1: Okay. Let's see where my number one film of the 1980s is the stuff.
0: Oh, I almost want to talk about these at the same time. Should we change this up? Okay, Go
1: ahead. Tell me what it is.
0: My number one's the blob. (laughs) (laughs)
1: <laughs> oh, <shit. laughs>
0: and they're basically kind of doing the same thing, but one's doing. I love the stuff too, but I, I but the effects and the blob, I have never been able to get over how incredible it is. So that's so funny. We picked yeah. both goopy, goopy <laughs> madness. All right, well, you start with the stuff. We'll- okay,
1: for the stuff for me is Quintessential 1980s. Yeah, yeah, it yeah. is about workout fitness culture. It is about commercialization. Yeah. It is about marketing. It is about corporate control, trying to control the consumer. Um, it is about corporate greed. It is everything 1980s kind of just, in one really fucked up movie with beautiful effects. I love Larry Cohen. Larry Cohen
0: Cohen is about the most 80s filmmaker. I mean, even though he he made 70s films too, but his 80s output is so smart and and it's all shoestring. Like, you know, of the winged serpents in the 80s, which is great too. That's
1: on my runner up list. Yeah, Um, for sure. Yeah. And we'll put our runner up out as a cheat sheet on our Patreon for next month. Yeah. Um, So don't mention, I won't mention any more here because I have a bunch. But yeah, the stuff for me, when I think like what is a 1980s horror film that is making a statement out of the 1980s, 1980s. Videodrome is, but man, the stuff is just hitting that exercise fitness craze and just the corporate greed and commercialization of, you know, the fast moving 1980s. It is just wonderful. Well,
0: and that, and Larry, you know, I think, you know, we've been lucky enough to meet him a couple times of, in his life and he just is one of the most charming fun to listen to people. But, you know, he, he understood that it, there was something real that America gets people hooked on something. To explain. And for him, it was actually the actual impetus for this one was the World War II and the cigarettes uh, being given free to GIs who got totally hooked. And he watched that happen uh, to a generation. And then he looked at the fitness craze and the, you know, the ogre and all. And, and I just think it's so smart on that level. Uh, mm-hmm. it's, it's a really good movie, especially for a low budget film. You know, it's, it's doing big swings uh, for something that probably didn't have studio money behind it. Um, so yes, big fan, and that that would you know always be in my close to the ten list anyway. Uh, the Blob is just you know it's one as a kid I liked it a lot, but as I've become older, you know if this was the normal list, the thing would be the thing and The Shining are my two favorite you know eighties films, but that's King and Carpenter. The Blob is kind of next in line for that, where I think the effects are just utterly to this day even though we've had sat in a room tony gardner told us beat by beat how he did it all still it's like the ultimate magic tricks to me um and you know kevin dylan's hair is amazing we we've all charted that by now shawnee smith's great i don't think it's you know the best acted film by any means it's fun candy clark's fun but there are just gag after gag and i think just the way it spreads across this town it's like pinnacle 80s of what the effects could do uh, when they're just utterly going for it. And, and the yeah. idea that these guys didn't know how to solve these things because they'd never been done before, you know, even as a remake, this has still never been done before. And they're solving it with these crazy, creative, what was the thing he did with the uh, material, right? It was Silk.
1: Like, yeah, stuck, remember yeah. we talked to yeah. um, Tony Gardner yeah, and yeah. then we also had Mike, um, oh gosh, Oh Lord, I can't. I, I work with him, but he's on sabbatical this semester. Oh gosh, he is so good at um effects as well. Yeah. And we had him come on and talk about them as well. Yeah, we had two, um,
0: two bouts at it. Yes. Yeah. Um, and, and, yeah, no, it's it's really something. And, to, you know, Tony's nicest guy around, still doing a lot of Chucky stuff um, and always always working on something. But, yeah, I just think The Blob is next level. That's Chuck Russell who did The Mask. And, again, mm-hmm. another one of those directors, you know, you, you kind of expect to pop up more uh, in the last few years, but ha- hasn't really. Um, but, yeah, so that's my number one. I love that our number ones are, like, so perfectly in line with our, uh, our vibe. So that's good. The Blob yeah. and the stuff sharing the number one spot, only on All the Colors of the Dark. Could that happen?
1: Definitely. Oh, my gosh, yeah. Just so much going on. Michael Fink, sorry. Oh, my gosh. His name just escaped me, and then I was like, he's going to kill me. Um, Michael Fink, um, just wonderful, wonderful uh, visual effects artist. Names so. are
0: hard to keep in mind. We all know There's a lot
1: of them. There's a, especially yes. separating my, my four different jobs, and when they blend together, it gets equally confusing. Um, um,
0: a quick but, yeah. rundown. Just do your 10 in order, and then I'll do mine, and then we will. So
1: my 10 in order, number 10, dolls. Number nine was Warlock, but when we discovered that there is Warlock Armageddon or more of when I remembered it, it became something wicked. This way comes number eight, the serpent in the rainbow. Number seven, Videodrome. Number six is Gothic. Number five, brain damage. Number four, Angel Heart. Number three, Leviathan. Number two is Trick or Treat. And number one is The Stuff.
0: Nice, that's a good list. That's And I'm so I'm a glad Warlock didn't make it because I think, for, for me, I always think of you with the uh, the Carnival film. Uh,
1: we only t- had one overlap.
0: I know, so I was right. Yeah. I, I, which is surprising. Yeah. I mean, Angel Heart I, would have normally gone. I just kind of mm-hmm. figured I'd get another one in there. Okay, uh, number 10, The Fun House. Number nine, Pin. Number eight, Dead and Buried. Number seven, The Hidden. Number six, Just Before Dawn. Number five, From Beyond. Number four, The Hitcher. Number three, The Entity. Number two, Videodrome. And number one, The Blob.
1: Fantastic. Well, we have lived through another decade countdown. We will be back in two weeks where we will be counting down our favorite. Uh, Franchise sequels sequels of the 1980s, and they don't have
0: to be sequels. They could be part ones, but that's where we're going to do it. That's
1: where we're going to put all of our franchise. Anything
0: big, anything big,
1: yeah, should be fun. Okay, thank you guys so much. We hope you see you on Friday night for our after midnight screening. And uh, thank you guys so much. Have a good one. Please find us on Patreon for our other show, Deep Cuts on the Off Weeks.
0: And I'm not going to plug any other movies, but Killer Clowns from Outer Space rules.
1: Of the Dark podcast is a Fangoria production. Producers and co hosts are Rebecca McKendry and Elric Kane. Executive producers are Tara Ainsley and Abby Gould. Associate producer is Jessica Soth of Amir. Sonic branding by Michael Rodriguez. And of course, our amazing sound engineer, Ernie Hurtado.